The following talk was given by Gwitha Kaido Nash over Zoom from her home in Nelson, New Zealand. Kaido began studying with Daido Roshi in 1990 and became a senior student of the Mountains and Rivers Order in 2012. They tell me it's afternoon, but that's not my experience. It's a wintry, misty morning here in New Zealand, Aotearoa. So my talk today is called Vast is the Robe of Liberation, How the Practice Grew Here in New Zealand, Aotearoa. And I want to begin this talk with a traditional Māori greeting to you all. And Māori are the indigenous people of Aotearoa, New Zealand. And I'm a Pākehā a non-Māori New Zealander. And I, as a Pākehā, I respectfully offer my mihi whakato, my greeting, my introduction. Tēnā koto, tēnā koto, tēnā koto katoa. Greetings to you all. Ko papa tūanuku, nei ranganui tēnā. We are on the same earth and under the same sky. Papa Tuanuku is the Earth Mother, Ranganui is the Sky Father. <clears throat> Ko tua o Wharipapa Te Monga. The mountain that speaks to my heart is Tua o Wharipapa, Mount Arthur. Ko Maitai Te Awa. The Maitai River is the river of my home. Ko Nati Tiriti toko iwi. So I am one of the people of the treaty. This is identifying me as a non-Maori New Zealander. And in 1840, <clears throat> the New Zealand colonial government signed a treaty, the Treaty of Waitangi, Te Tiriti or Waitangi, with many but not all of the Maori chiefs. And I'm going to talk a bit more about this treaty. Um, later. Ko Joseph Hunt Raua, Ko Jean Hunt Oko Matua. My parents are Joseph and Jean Hunt. Ko Kaido Toko Ingawa. My name is Kaido Gwithanesh. Norera Tenakoto Tenakoto Tenatato Katoa. Greetings to you all. Koto meaning all of you and not me, and tato meaning all of us together. And what this means is that now I've completed my greetings, now we are one. And if I were a Maori New Zealander, my mihi would give you a lot more detail about where I come from and who my ancestors are. And in many cases, Māori can trace their lineage, their whakapapa, right back to the waka, the canoe that first brought their ancestors from Hawaiki, the ancestral land, to, to Aotearoa. And the first time I took part in a Buddhist service, during which we chanted the names of the Buddhist ancestors, I was reminded very strongly of that Māori tradition. And just to complete the picture of who I am, 
Uh, my own mother's lineage came from Cornwall in the UK in the 1860s. And my father's people came from England in the early 20th century. And I also greet you as a student of the Mountains and Rivers Order, Sangha. And I greet you from here at the bottom of the world, from one of our three main islands. I'm on the South Island, which sits in the South Pacific Ocean and lies under southern skies. Ko Papa Tuanuku Ne Ranganui Tina. I greet my teachers, my Rangatira, Shugen Roshi, Hogan Sensei, if he's there digitally, and Hojin Sensei. And I greet all of you, those that I have met and who made me so welcome on my two visits to the monastery, and those of you that I haven't yet met. And in this talk, I'm going to attempt to weave together the fibres of Pākehā, non-Māori New Zealanders, with Māori culture, such as I know of it, with the Buddha Dharma. The Buddha Dharma that was first brought to Aotearoa in 1988 by Daido Roshi and his accompanying monk, Shugen. And I'm going to attempt to weave these fibres together much as the Maori people weave together a flax kete, a basket, a container, to show how this unique weaving together has resulted in creating a container, an affiliate of the mountains and rivers order that is strong, enduring, and resilient. And my aim in beginning this talk with the mihi whakato is to give you a sense of my place in this land of Aotearoa. And as Pākehā, we are encouraged more and more to learn te reo Māori, the language, and to begin to learn about tikanga Māori, the Māori way of doing things, to learn about the social and spiritual and cultural treasures, the valuable objects, resources, ideas, and mythology. But as a Pākehā, I need to learn to do so respectfully and in a way that does not appropriate these treasures. So I'm going to spend a bit of time now talking briefly about Māori and Pākehā relations over the last 150 years or so. Don't worry, I'm keeping, I'll keep it as brief as possible. But I think it's important um, <clears throat> to let, give you a bit of history because it so informs what's happening now and why the Black Lives Matter movement that began in the United States has resounded so strongly in Aotearoa as it has throughout the world. So as most colonizers did, the European settlers of Aotearoa tried to impose their own culture on top of the existing indigenous culture to suppress it, to stamp it out even. 
In fact, the introduction of European diseases like measles very nearly wiped out the population. And it's been interesting to note that during this COVID-19 crisis, the Māori, iwi and hapu, the tribes and sub-tribes, have often set up their own checkpoints and closed their tribal areas uh, to keep the disease out. And I noticed uh, when I was looking on YouTube the other day that um, the Indian people in the States are doing the same thing and closing their tribal areas and having their own uh, practices to control COVID-19. And that's completely understandable. But early on, the systematic stealing and appropriating of land and resources began. And in 1840, in response to some unrest, the Treaty of Waitangi, Te Tiriti o Waitangi, was signed between many but not all of the Maori chiefs and the representatives of Her Majesty's colonial government. The Tiriti acknowledged that the Māori chiefs had collective sovereignty over New Zealand, which they agreed to cede to the British Crown, and in return they were promised undisturbed possession of their lands, estates, forests and fisheries, yielding an exclusive right of preemption to the Crown over such lands as the chiefs wish to alienate. So in simple English, the land that the chiefs wished to sell at prices agreed upon by both parties. Now this did not work and the land wars ensued which deprived Māori of most of their lands, their livelihood, their way of living and their mana, their spiritual authority which is tied so closely to their land, their tūrangawaiwai, their place to stand. And the key point here is that the very notions of sovereignty and land ownership by individuals was located in the European legal and political framework. The Māori had no such concept. So after the brutality of the land wars and the decimation of the population through European diseases, the Maori population began to heal and grow again. And then became the years of assimilation. The idea that tikanga Maori was irrelevant, the language was suppressed, and the widespread assumption was that if Māori were to succeed, everything had to be done the white way. But thankfully, they didn't accept that. And the, through all that time was a growing holding on to their treasure. And in the 70s and 80s, it emerged strongly in what's been come to be called the Māori Renaissance. And language nests, Preschool kohanga reos were established to grow the language, and the tiriti o waitangi was dusted off. The language was examined, 
and the slow and painful process of reparation was begun, and it continues to this day. The Waitangi Tribunal has made settlements with some iwi and hapu, but there's still a long way to go. So to make a generalisation, which is always dangerous, I'd say that the Pākehā here in Aotearoa are slowly becoming more respectful to tikanga Māori. The reo Māori, the language, the social and spiritual treasures and mythology are becoming more a part of our education system and culture but we still have a long way to go. Maori are still overrepresented in incarceration statistics, poverty statistics, and poor health statistics. So I've taken a bit of time to describe this, but I wanted to try and give you some understanding of where we are at in Aotearoa, in the historical, cultural background that Daido Roshi and Shugan arrived into in 1988, bringing with them the Buddha Dharma. The Kiwi Sangha here have begun our own version of the Beyond Fear of Differences program using the 10 principles that you've developed at Zen Mountain Monastery. And we meet Monday evenings through Zoom and are currently looking at equity and the statement that reparations are sometimes required because of historical oppression and our varying positions in contemporary society. And that's a perfect framework for studying together our tiriti o waitangi. So hopefully... What I've given you is some understanding of the strands of Pākehā history, Māori tikanga, that have gone into the weave of the kete, that together with the strands of the Buddha Dharma that Daido Roshi brought to Aotearoa in 1988, have resulted in the kete, the basket, the container, that we now call the Aotearoa affiliate of the mountains and rivers order. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. And there's one more thing I want to mention about tikanga Māori at this stage, and that is the marae. And the marae is a communal or sacred place, and it consists of buildings and land and the principal building is the meeting house, the Whare Nui. And there are many marae throughout New Zealand, Aotearoa. And they're all linked to an iwi, a tribe, or a hapu, a sub-tribe. And most New Zealanders have visited a marae at some stage in their life. And there's a strict protocol for welcoming visitors onto a marae. And the Sangha were very happy to introduce Hojin Sensei a few years ago. She was welcomed onto the Ra Paki Marae near Christchurch. And then two years ago, 
we were very happy to take Shugen Roshi and Yukon onto the Whakatumarai in Nelson as part of our 30-year anniversary celebrations. And Māori see their marae as tūranga waiwai, their place to stand, the place they belong. And whenever I hear that word, one of Daido Roshi's commonly quoted sayings comes into my mind. No creature ever fails to cover the ground she stands on. And that to me seems a beautiful expression of Tūranga Waiwai. And once you've been welcomed on to any marae, you're welcome to return any time. And I've been lucky enough to come across a book recently by a Māori kamatua, an elder, called Hare Williams. It's a book of poems and teachings and talks. <clears throat> and he has a small poem called Poro Paruaki on the Marae. We, the visitors, are given the right to return or stay, yet leave to go. Whatever happens, we can return and know we are never alone. We belong. I say it again and tell it to the world. Hoki mai ano. Ah, come and give me a hug. So in 2003, my partner, Swedo, and I came to the monastery for six months. And we both experienced that sense of Turanga Waiwai, of coming home. And then again in 2012, when I returned alone for the Shuso Hosen time, that feeling was there again, even more strongly. The place, the buildings, the mountain, the river, the people. They were all my Turanga Waiwai. Thank you. So how did this child of New Zealand, Aotearoa, with all the influence and conditioning of her colonial past, growing up in the culture of small town, conservative New Zealand in the 1950s and 60s, how did I come to the point in my life where at nearly 70 years old, I chant daily. I wear the Tathagata's teachings, saving all sentient beings. How did the robe of liberation, which is always present, come to life in my life and in the lives of many other Kiwi practitioners of the Buddha Dharma? How have we worn the Tathagata's teaching for over 30 years now? How have we nurtured it and sustained the three treasures, the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, out here on the southern outpost? Do we southern monkeys have the Buddha nature? And the short answer is 
We couldn't have done it without our teachers. Starting with Dido Roshi's first visit in 1988, accompanied by a young monk called Shugan, and then in 1997, Shugan Sensei, as he was then, took over the annual visits and has continued ever since. And then more recently, we've been privileged to receive a second visit a year from either Hojin or Hogan Sensei. And before that, for 10 years or so, the Kiwi Sangha had hosted a teacherless session in the winter at Rotuiti. Listening to recorded talks and sitting day after day without the presence of our teacher. We are deeply grateful to our teachers for making the very long trip down here. And we're deeply grateful to all of you there at Zen Mountain Monastery, the Turanga Waiwai of the MRO, under Mount Tremper and beside the Esopus River the home for all of us, where whatever happens, we can return and know we are never alone. We belong. And many Kiwis over the last 32 years have made the pilgrimage to ZMM, and many of them were aided to do so by Mary Kaijin Mould whose generosity in gifting her New Zealand pension fund to the Kiwi Sangha when she became a monk made travel to the US possible for many of us. And Kaijin also functioned as a mother to many bewildered Kiwis who turned up at the door, making sure we had enough bedding, showing us around the kitchen, suggesting trips out over Hosan and all of those welcoming sorts of things. And the other thing I want to acknowledge and express our gratitude for is the ongoing support from the staff at Zen Mountain Monastery, the monks and residents who fill in the gaps when the teachers are away and who work so hard to keep the communications and resources flowing our way. In the beginning, of course, there was no internet, no digital technology, and the only method of communication was by mail. International phone calls were very expensive. Although I was very startled one Saturday morning in the early 1990s to pick up the phone, and <clears throat> on the other end was Dido Roshi. Ah, oh, hello, Kaido, it's Dido here. And um, <clears throat> he was checking out that I was okay about a difficulty I'd written to him about a few weeks earlier. So we'd receive bundles of taped and videotaped Dharma talks and Chose Crimp researched and invested in some duplicating machines and for many years he faithfully sent packages of taped dharma talks to each group 
and our library shelves in the Nelson's Endo are still packed with hundreds of these tapes and videos. And we'd eagerly look forward to the quarterly mountain records, which also turned up in the mail at great cost. And they turned up until quite recently. But all of this built a sense of connection. But now, look at what we can do now. We can just zoom in and be present right here, right now. And the current COVID-19 crisis has seen the use of Zoom really come into its own. During our level four lockdown, we began morning sitting and services online, <clears throat> and that's connected us throughout Aotearoa in a way we didn't do before. Now, instead of seeing Sangha once or at most twice a year, we see them every day. We sit zazen together, we chant, we have morning service. On Friday morning, we take turns to lead a short gratitude practice after the service. And we hold Monday evening discussion groups. We discuss the 16 principles from Ecodharma, and now we've begun discussing the Beyond Fear of Differences principles, as I mentioned. And we take turns at facilitating these groups, which begin and end with a karakia, a Maori prayer. <clears throat> so while there's always been a strong thread of communication and care spooling out from the monastery, it's so much easier and more direct now. We meet via Zoom with our teachers regularly for mondos. We even had an art practice link up recently with Hojin Sensei. And we kept regularly informed via email about opportunities to zoom in and link up with sits and discussions or mondos. And it's been great for me too to be able to link into the seniors meetings every now and then. And recently in July, we had an online session and Shugen Roshi was able to zoom in for intro remarks Doksan with every single one of us, even the people online, and talks, and a closing mondo. But in those early days of practice, we not only felt far away from our teachers and the monastery, but as I said earlier, we also felt far away from each other. So what sustained us? What kept us going? And when Swedo and I first began to practice, we lived in the far north of the North Island of Aotearoa. And Swedo heard through the Auckland Zen Buddhist Society about a Zen teacher coming to New Zealand to run something called a session, whatever that was. It was to be held in the Waitakere Ranges west of Auckland. Jim. Jimmon Langebeer from Auckland, a jazz musician who'd visited ZMM in the 80s, and Hanchi Andy Baba, a karate teacher from Nelson, had both petitioned Daido Roshi to come and run a session in New Zealand. So he came. Apparently, he wasn't quite sure where in the world New Zealand actually was. 
was it somewhere near New Guinea? And he found out more than 20 hours of flying later. Meanwhile, those organising those first two retreats, one in Auckland and one in Nelson, scrambled around gathering together what was needed. Orioki sets were quickly whipped up out of old sheets, and they're still in use, and bowls and chopsticks were purchased from Wali's, a Chinese warehouse, and the op shops were scoured for old spoons. We have replaced the old noisy metal spoons with nice, quiet bamboo ones. And zabatons and zafus and instruments of varying suitability were gathered together. And by the time I attended my first session in Nelson in 1990, it all seemed to me to be running very smoothly. And there were a large number of white geared students of Hanchi, Andy, attending, who all sat on wooden benches and added a great deal of rigor to the session. There were lots of oos emanating out from the Doksan room. In 1992, Suido and I became students. We sat Tangario with a large group of 12. And then in 1995, we did the precepts training with Daido Roshi and Shugen was our sewing guide. In 2012, Shugen Roshi invited me to come over to the monastery and become a senior student. And I would just like to read now an extract from the first talk that I gave to the Sangha uh, after I had become a senior student. And in the old days, we used to put out a magazine called Manawa. And that came out for several years. And the word Manawa means breath heart, mind. My talk was called People Like Us Can Make a Difference. And it just gives you a bit of the history of my practice. In 1990, at age 40, I met Dido Roshi at Nelson Girls College. That's where, that's where we were holding the session. At that time, I appeared to the world as quite a highly functioning, kind human being. But when I met Dido and sat my first session, the silence of the retreat revealed to me something I'd hidden away that I deeply repressed throughout my life. A deep well of self-loathing, craving and desperation. I couldn't get away from it anymore. And that's when I first encountered Bodhicitta, the heartfelt yearning to free myself from the pain of ignorance and habitual patterns. The process of Zazen that I learned of seeing the thought and letting it go provided me with a way to start working with the so thoroughly repressed suffering. For many years, I sat with what I can fairly describe as physical 
and emotional anguish. But the words of Dido, you are already whole and complete, lacking nothing, became a cornerstone of my practice. And it took me many years and much patient work from my teachers to learn to see my cravings for love, appreciation, competence, to see these faults as I thought of them without being severe, judging, and unkind to myself. So I mentioned earlier that we not only felt far away from the monastery, we also felt far away from each other. We came together once a year for a weekend workshop followed by a six-day session, which was, of course, <clears throat> held in silence. So sometimes it took a few years to find out what someone's occupation was or, for example, how many children they had. We knew them intimately from sitting with them in silence for a week, but for a few years we may not, not have known much about the details of their lives. We'd come together intensely once a year, and then there'd be little communication in between. And remembering that time really makes me appreciate the Sangha treasure we have now, and the daily Zoom link that has brought this intimacy to a new level. And as we only saw our teacher once a year, we knew what a precious opportunity that was. The running for the Doksan line was a stampede. We had to be reminded to take care of each other in our urgency. And after session, we'd go home to our places throughout Aotearoa and we had to dig in and find that motivation within ourselves to practice the Dharma. By the time of Dido's last visit in 1997, he made the comment that he felt we'd put down deep roots. We were underway. And one of the key reasons why we were able to put down deep roots was Jim, Jinmon Langabeer. His dedication to growing the practice in Aotearoa. For years in the early 90s, he spent as much time as he could at ZMM. He became our first senior student, and we all utterly relied on him as mentor, practice advisor, and source of all knowledge, ceremonial. Because we only practiced service, for example, with a teacher once a year, it was just a steep learning curve every year to try and get it right. We still miss you, Jinmon. In 1993, Swedo and I made the decision to move our family to Nelson to live among Sangha. And we have come to appreciate the treasure that Sangha truly is. 
And these strong foundations that Dido Roshi and his monks laid down for us in the early years, the efforts that Jinmon put in to help us grow a strong, independent, resilient Sangha, and the dedicated practice of each member of the Sangha has resulted in a strong, nationwide, unified family of practitioners here in Aotearoa. Many practitioners have played key roles in establishing practice centres throughout our land. And we've worked hard to maintain them and keep the practice going locally. And for years, we've had Dido Roshi's words and phrases ringing in our ears and hearts. Trust yourself. Nobody else can do it for you. And don't put another's head on your shoulders. And because we're so physically isolated, both from ZMM and each other, we knew we had to dig deep. We had to uncover our own resources and develop resilience if this practice was going to survive here. And part of this process of finding our own resources, of realizing what strands in the kete, the basket we already have here, has been the decision made by the Sangha several years ago now, during and envisaging the future workshop, the decision was we wanted to learn more tikanga Māori and to incorporate it into our practice. And the book I quoted a poem from earlier, Words of a Kamatoa by Hare Williams, has so much dharma in it that I'd like to share a little more of this with you now because it's added depth and richness to my understanding of practice and, in this case, of the verse of the Kesa. He writes about whanangatanga, which is translated as connectedness to self and others, to places, plants, animals, and all things, the 10,000 things. Vast is the robe of liberation. Fanangatanga also means to add quality, goodness to ourselves and others, a formless field of benefaction. And it also contains the meaning that relationships are the source of this connectedness. I wear the Tathagata's teaching, saving all sentient beings. And how does our practice, the practice that you are all doing together this week, physically together in the Zendo, or independently in your own homes, and I see so many of you there sitting in your little squares, how does our practice save all sentient beings? 
How does it help us experience this connectedness to self and other, to places, plants, animals, and all things? We save all sentient beings, it seems to me, by studying ourselves. We look inside, just like you're doing this week, and we see the ways in which we harm ourselves and others. We see and let go over and over again what Pima Chodron calls our protective patterns. In her book, Living Beautifully, she says, when we actually do that, when we let go our protective patterns, we begin to see not only how much better it feels to live that way, but as a wonderful side effect, we find that we begin naturally and effectively to reach out to others in care and support, saving all sentient beings. Whanangatanga begins with ourselves. Our practice of seeing and letting go over and over and over again. Hare Williams also writes about another concept, that of kaitiakitanga, which means to take care of the environment that's around us. Water, trees, home, family, everything that keeps us well. He talks about the present generation as being the guardians of future generations. These things, water, trees, home, family, are not ours to keep and do what we want with. We are the guardians, the kaitiaki. We hold them in trust for the future. Tikanga Māori holds there is a deep kinship between humans and the natural world. All life is connected, the diamond net of Indra. People are not superior to the natural order. They are part of it. And to understand the world, one must understand the relationships between different parts of the web, pure Buddhism. The Maori trace their ancestry back to the beginning of existence, back to the single entity that then divided to become Ranganui and Papatuanuku, the Sky Father and the Earth Mother. And the children of the Sky Father and the Earth Mother took the form of various physical elements like wind, water, fire, and humans eventually emerged from these elements. And this genealogy explains the bond between humans and the rest of the physical world. We are the same thing. We are part of the web, the diamond net. We are the guardians, the kaitiaki for the future. We hold a sacred trust. 
Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. I wear the Tathagata's teaching, saving all sentient beings. The robe of liberation is vast, boundless, and formless. It covers and contains us all. And as it says in Dogen's teaching on the Kesa, in the Shobo Genzo, nothing is left untouched. It's boundless. It reaches in the ten directions. And when I put on my robe and my raksu, I feel connectedness to self and others. I feel connectedness to Daido Roshi, who flicked water onto my head off a pine branch picked from the forest at Rotuiti. I feel connectedness to Shugen Roshi, who taught me how to fit the pieces of the Raksu together. I feel Fanangatanga. Hey Tangata, hey Tangata, hey Tangata. What connects us within the robe is the people, the people, the people the two-legged people who do or don't wear the robe, the four-legged people, the finned people, and the feathered people, the awa and the manga. And as Shugen Roshi said in a recent talk, while the raksu can be a great reminder, whether we are physically wearing it or not, whether we're conscious and awake to it or not, we are bound by it, bound to begin to live our lives by the precepts, the moral and ethical teachings of the Buddha. A formless field of benefaction. Dogen says that this formless field holds all things, water, trees, home, family. Everything that keeps us well, the 10,000 things. Us, sitting here in Aotearoa, you, sitting there in the monastery and throughout the US. I wear the Tathagata's teaching. I sit with all sentient beings to know myself, to learn to become a softer, gentler, kinder person and to take this into the world, to wear it. Saving all sentient beings, being a kaitiaki, a guardian, one who protects and nurtures water, trees, home, family, grandchildren, everything that keeps us well. Dogen says, the Kesa is not something that we ourselves or anyone else possesses, yet it manifests and dwells wherever someone keeps it, and it enlarges those who accept and hold it. It becomes vast.
It is vast. And I've got another little poem here from Hare Williams. I have learned that I'm a seed scattered across the Pacific from my ancient home in Tafiti. I will therefore never, ever be lost. I have learned that I'm a seed scattered across the Pacific from my ancient home in Mount Tremper. I will therefore never, ever be lost. Here we are, wearing the vast robe of liberation. How could we be lost? We are held in the kite of history, Fanangatanga, Kaitiakitanga, the Buddha Dharma, and love, respect, and reparation. It's traditional for the final words of a talk to be a karakia. A karakia acknowledges all creation, the presence of ancestors, and the well-being of all. I'll just say the words of farewell first, and then I'll close with the karakia. E ngā mana, e ngā reo, rōrangatira mā, hairi, 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 atu rā. And this farewell acknowledges the mana, the language, and the role of the Dharma leaders, our teachers. And now the karakia. Kia hora te marino. Kia whakapapa punamu te moana. Kia tire te karo hirohi. E mua i huarahi. May the calm be widespread. May the surface of the ocean glisten like greenstone. And may the shimmer of summer dance across your pathway forever. Thanks for listening. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or to find out more about our online programs, please visit us at zmm.org. To learn more about the activities of our New Zealand Sangha, visit zmm.org slash affiliates.